You are tuned in to Cultivating Indigenous Voices podcast, sharing Indigenous history, topics, and community stories. Hosted and produced by Tina Andrew. Skug Thosh Autumn, Tina Andrew back with an updated episode on the topic Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. This is a conversation I covered featuring the group Indivisible Thono just last year in 2019. This is also in collaboration with the Tucson Indian Center, who will be hosting a virtual Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Awareness Run. Today, I'll be talking with April Ignacio, who is a member of Arizona Study Committee on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, also joining the conversation is Sally Ann Gonzalez, who is a member of Arizona State Senate representing District 3. And a previous guest I had with Tucson Indian Center, Drew Harris, community cultural specialist and educator. Now I'm going to give the mic over to Drew, who is the organizer of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Awareness Run, where he's going to share more about that. So why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to the listeners, Drew, and share more about this event. Yes, thank you, Tina. And um, thank you to everyone that participated in our first ever Missing, Murdered, Indigenous Women and Girls uh, Awareness Run. This is our second virtual run. You know, last time we had, a I think, about 500 participants, and we're hoping to reach that goal this time around as well. And so this podcast will be featured alongside the actual the start date of the registration on October 12th, uh, which is also going to be Indigenous Peoples Day. So we are just really thankful for everyone that participated. And we are also really honored to have Senator Gonzalez join us today to kind of give us an update about the happenings of this crisis that, you know, we're trying to bring awareness to with this virtual run, at least at the state level. And then I'm also just very honored to have April Ignacio, who's a part of Indivisible Tohono, who's also going to give us the perspective from a grassroots organization pertaining to this crisis. So really excited. I'm really thankful. And great job to all you runners. Maybe if you completed the race, uh, congratulations. And um, I just hope you sit back and enjoyed this podcast. Yes. And of course, happy Indigenous Peoples Day to all my relations out there. And big ups to everybody who did participate in the virtual run. And hopefully you all are thinking of awesome ways to celebrate today. And now I'm just going to share a little bit of the background if you're maybe you're not too familiar, if you're a first time listener, and I'm just going to catch you all up on information regarding what we're going to talk about today. So last year, August 13th, 2019, Governor Doug Ducey joined families, tribal leaders and officials when he signed House Bill 2570 into law. This would establish a comprehensive data collecting and study on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. For decades, this issue has affected families from tribal communities whose loved ones have either gone missing or been murdered. Until recently, data on these women or girls was almost non-existent. With great efforts from grassroots individuals and groups teaming up with tribal officials, state leadership, etc., We are finally seeing proper evaluations, interpretations, 
in the matter of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Now, I'd like to introduce Sally Ann Gonzalez. Please, if you could share more about yourself, your background, and anything else you'd like to share with the listeners. Thank you, Tina. Yes, my name is Sally Ann Gonzalez, and I'm the senator for LD3, Legislative District 3, which includes Pasquayaki, downtown Tucson, and the university, as well as most of the west side of the city of Tucson. And I'm a citizen of the Pasquayaki Nation, and I live on the reservation. Let me go ahead and just tell you a little bit about myself. I'm married to Luis Gonzalez, and we have a large family. We have five daughters and 27 children that really are the reason for us doing what we do in the community, in our public life, you know, as a senator. And uh, my husband serves on the Pima Community College Governing Board as well. I am a teacher by profession, and so in 1992, I was teaching fourth graders at Lawrence Elementary, and that's what really got me to go into what I call policy making and policy changing, and a lot of people would call me a politician. And yes, I'm a politician, but I don't like to call myself a politician because I really am a policy changer. And that's the reason I went into politics. And so I first ran for tribal council with my own tribe, Pasquayaki. I was elected in 92 and served one four-year term. And in 96, when I finished that term, I really found out throughout those four years that we needed more Indigenous representation in the state government, in other local governments like the county school boards. And there just happened to be in 96 an opening for state representative in what was then LD10. I haven't moved in the 32 years that I've been living in Tucson on the Pasquayaki Reservation, but my district has changed. Back then in 2010, I used to represent the Honoatum, the San Javier district. And 10 years ago, the redistricting committee put them back with the rest of the tribe, and so they're now in District 4. And I no longer represent them, which is a bummer because I enjoyed representing them for all those years in the house. Um, but like I said, I'm a, an educator by profession and now a policymaker. And in 1996, I became one of the first Indigenous women to be elected to the state legislature. And some of you might remember Deborah Norris, who was elected in the same year. The both of us have a running joke between us, and I always tell her I was first because I won the election and was uh, <laughs> on the night of the election, and her vote from the Honoatum didn't come in for two or three days. <laughs> they, were, they were counted for two or three days, and so I, I always told her I was the first Indigenous woman, but we served together for four years in the House of Representatives. I was then, in 2000, I ran for the Senate and lost. And then I stayed away from running from any office for 10 years, from 2000 until 2010. And in 2010, my family and my daughters convinced me to go back to the state legislature to run again because of what was happening 
And now, 10 years later, they had become teachers themselves. And they were telling me it was 2010, right after the recession, and they had cut a lot of educational money. And so they were the ones who convinced me to go back because there's not enough teachers or educators at the state legislature that really understand what's happening in the classroom and what kind of funding is needed to really do justice for all children in the educational school system around the state. And so in 2010, I ran again. Also, the other thing was 1070. All of you might remember 1070 was the really ugly bill against immigrants. Yes. In But really, all of us brown people were being affected by that law because it essentially gave the law permission for any police, not just Border Patrol, but any police to ask us for our papers and to question all of us that might look like we just crossed the border, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway, those were the two reasons I went back in 2010, and I've been serving ever since eight years in the House. And in 2018, two years ago, I ran for the Senate because A lot of people might not remember that we have term limits, and so we can only serve four terms or eight years in each of the houses. And so after I finished that eight years in the House in 2018, I ran a very hard-fought battle and campaign to win the Senate seat for LD3, and I won. So this is my second year in the Senate, and this year... I'm working on getting the vote out and supporting other like-minded candidates for school board because that's important to me, as well as the legislature, because we would like to change the makeup of the legislature and for the Democrats to become into power so that some of the issues that we'll be talking about today, for example, that we can actually be able to make a difference. But I'll stop there and and let you ask some questions. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for sharing all that good information, especially for the listeners. I'm sure they're all learning something new about you. All right. Well, I hope all you listeners are ready for some good food for thought. Now, Senator Gonzalez. For many years, you have helped women and children under different capacities. When did you first become aware of missing and murdered Indigenous women? Certainly, about three years ago, there was a movement that started in D.C. and that was moving out towards our communities to really look at changing policy that would help really curtail what was happening in our communities. But in growing up, I didn't realize this was an issue because in our Yaqui communities are very small. We don't have the vast land that our neighbors like the Tohono O'odham do or up in northern Arizona, the Navajos. And so we didn't have that as a big issue. I think it becomes really problematic for bigger land-based Um, tribes and indigenous people because it's easier to hide evidence for the perpetrators to run away and hide. And so it it didn't become a really big issue until the movement started about three years ago. Now, you know, we all know that sometimes political processes aren't easy. What were some of the challenges that were met or faced 
when dealing with the missing and murdered and indigenous and girls issue when it was being brought up as far as taking it to a state level? Well, again, I'm a Democrat and I'm in the minority. And so I think that unfortunately, our system at the legislature of governance is not easy and it's certainly not fair. I can tell you real quickly that when I first was elected in 96, I thought, oh man, I'm ready to legislate and to bring forth all these legislations that brought me to here and then come to find out it doesn't work that way. You know, I would like your listeners to know that the Democrats have a lot of good bills, but most of the time our Democratic bills are not even given a hearing. And it is for lots of different reasons, but mostly it's partisan. It's mostly that the Republicans that are in charge and in power do not want to hear our bills. And so they're not heard. They're not even given a a hearing, much less a vote where, you know, we can vote it up or down or they can vote it up or down. But at least we would like our bills to get heard. And in all of the years that I've served, very little Democratic bills get through through the process. It's a long process. And, you know, each bill has to go through the chamber that it was introduced. Like, for example, if I introduce a bill, it needs to go to the Senate and through committees and then the the Senate as a whole. And then if we voted out of the Senate, then it goes to the House and it goes through the very long process again in the House. And if it passes both chambers, both houses, then it goes to the governor. And then he has a chance to either sign it into law right away because he likes it, veto the bill because he doesn't like it and send it back, or he lets it become law without his signature. And so it's a really long process. Some bills take years to get through the process because they don't make it all the way through and and legislators reintroduce it until it finally makes it through the whole process. But, But it's really difficult. Unfortunately, the biggest difficulty is bipartisan and the people who are in control do not want to listen to our issues and the issues that we bring from our communities, from our constituents, and also those issues that affect people of color. And in this case, indigenous people and women and girls who are being uh, murdered and no justice has been due to them and their families all across the country. For example, let's just take House Bill 2570, which is the bill that established the study committee last year for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in the state of Arizona. The only reason we were able to do this and and do some investigation and gather data is because the original bill that was presented didn't get a hearing, and they didn't want to give it a hearing, and they told the sponsor Representative Germain that if they could change it into a study committee, they would allow the study committee to go forth. And so that's how she got this bill passed. Um, all of us at the with the Indigenous Peoples Caucus 
sponsored, and she she actually got quite a few of members in both houses, the House and the Senate, to sign this bill and and got it passed because now it became a bipartisan bill in sponsorship and also in carrying it out. But it's because it's, it didn't become law. It's a study committee to just give us the opportunity to find information and gather information for a later point, maybe this coming session, to actually put bills into place that will allow what we want it to happen in the first place. And I'll talk about a bill that came about from the hearings that we had for the study committee. But those are some of the issues, not being in power. And I know this might sound harsh, but it's reality. And it's what we have been seeing this summer across the country with the racial tensions and the racial discriminating. That's what's happening here in the state of Arizona. You're listening to Senator Sally Ann Gonzalez share her political experiences on the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls here on Cultivating Indigenous Voices. We have not been able to change policy to be able to help families and women and children to be safe and to, you know, they're being killed. And because we are... Another word that people use and, and that I'm using is that people of color and indigenous people are like, you know, some members of the government, you know, all over the country, whether it's in the state, whether it's in the federal government and, and other agencies, not just the leaders, but in other agency, police departments, prosecuting office, attorney general's office, we are looked at as throwaway people. And yes, they do basic investigation when somebody is killed, but they don't do thorough investigation. And if they don't find a perpetrator and that they can prosecute, you know, the cases within a month, the case goes cold and that's it. Nobody is going to complain. Nobody is going to ask about what happened to this case. You know, it's unfortunate that also a lot of families don't have money to buy attorneys, high power attorneys or even attorneys to be able to follow these cases and to get justice for their family members. And so it's it's really a tragedy when when we have, um, you know, this happening all over the country and in the state of Arizona, that's what's happening. And these are some of the reasons why our bills are not being heard. They're not being heard, and we haven't been able to make traction. And so we're hoping that 2570 and the study committee that was allowed and the very thorough investigation that the committee has completed with the report coming out in just a week or two, that that is really going to bring light to what really is happening in the state of Arizona and to give some data to really present data that this is what's happening. There's a lack of resources when these cases are being looked at. And those are some of the things that we hope to remedy with the study and also the collection of data that the report will bring forth that everybody can see and read in a week or two. And I'll stop there with that question. Okay. Thank you for sharing some real truths 
about a lot of the facts when it comes to people of color, when it comes to indigenous people, native people, populations throughout the state of Arizona and throughout this entire country. I feel like a lot of the information you shared is a lot of truth to that. So thank you for not sugarcoating it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't sugarcoat it because we need to listen to the facts and then deal with them and then use the facts to work at bringing solutions to the issues that we're facing in our communities. Thank you so much. Now, with this whole study committee, what is your role as far as being involved in the study committee? Well, my role in the committee is just like any other committee member, to help gather information to be there at the hearings that we've had, um, to listen to the presenters that are giving information. And then there was also a subcommittees that worked on different things that people are going to read in the report. For example, gathering the data, researching and doing interviews with victims and families. Family that have had, you know, they are victims because they have had uh, family members disappear um, and are missing or that they have been murdered and nobody has been prosecuted for the murder of their family member. So I see my role now, and but I'll liberate a little bit. But I would like to, to really let your listeners know that because of COVID, we weren't able to visit as many communities as the committee would have liked to be able to let these family victims to tell their stories to the committee so that in that way we could understand more what was happening and also collect data. But we were able to visit Navajo and also to the community of Hilla River Indian Community. And at both hearings, we got to hear the families talk about their missing and their murdered family members. And it was really tragic to hear. And it was really sad to hear the families talk about this and and, and tell us their stories. And, and it was very difficult for them to not only come forth, but also to really tell the committee what had happened. And so I really have to thank those family members too that participated because it really offered really, you know, how devastating it is that their missing had not been found. They have not been brought home and their murder family members have not gotten justice through our system for many different reasons, the lack of resources, Again, discrimination because these are indigenous women and girls and oftentimes, well, who's going to advocate for them? Who's going to, you know, keep keep us accountable for the work that we must do to find who perpetrated these vicious and violent crimes against women and girls? And so I'm really happy that these families participated and that they were able, very painstakingly able to to share their stories with us because it really provided a lot of information that we are going to be able to use to go forward and for those who haven't found justice for their members to do so. 
And the other thing that we learned, that I learned from participating, from being a committee member through these stories, is unintended consequences and uh, possibly, and also how the law, the current law, I'll explain right now, the current law might not be accessible or current laws might not benefit some of these families. And I'll give you an example of that. We have in the state of Arizona the Victim Compensation Fund that provides monies for families or the victims that allow them to get cared for. For example, if we have a woman who got raped in one of our indigenous communities or anywhere in the state of Arizona, for that matter, it's a very difficult, being a woman myself, it would be very difficult experience for any woman to have been attacked and been raped. And, you know, when this happens, nobody wants to talk about it. I know I wouldn't want to talk about it. You're horrified. You're embarrassed. There are all kinds of emotions that are going through. And some women just shut down and they don't want to talk about it. But those not being able to talk to a counselor, not being able to talk to somebody who might have gone through the same experience, sometimes really plays havoc on their psyche and their mental health, in their physical health as well, and their victims. And the fund is there to be able to provide some compensation for victims in order to get some help, to be able to pay for some counseling, to be able to pay for things that they need in order to recover from this vicious crime that happened upon them. And anyway, one of the things that we heard from these families that came to testify was that oftentimes they were not able to collect and to to really benefit for the Victim Compensation Fund because the law says that in order for victims or the victim's family to qualify for this fund, the crime needed to be reported within three days. Three days wow. is like, is a very short period of time, Yes, especially when you were victimized like that, to go through and think, okay, what am I going to do? Should I do this? Should I do that? And so one of the things that after hearing this last year in one of the testimonies in January of this year, I filed a bill to change that, to change that to 30 days. And I went to 30 days, the prosecutors, you know, attorney general's office didn't want me to file the bill. They told me that the only reason that they have three days is because if they don't report in three days, a lot of the evidence is lost after that. And I said, I can understand that, but certainly three days is not enough for a woman that has been raped to be able to come to a realization that she needs to report this, that she needs to go to the doctor, that she needs to do all of this. And they might not decide to do this for days, weeks, months, and even years before they are able to bring themselves to report this crime. And so the reason I went to 30 days is because I went, the state of Utah and the state of New Mexico, which are two of our um, bordering states, they give people 30 days. And I figured, well, that's at least a few more days for victims to be able to, you know, go through what they need to go through and maybe come to the realization that they want to report this crime and they do so. And in doing so, they 
qualify for the victim compensation fund to allow them to try to get some normalcy, to try to get their physical and mental health back after, you know, experiencing such a trauma. And so these are the kinds of things, and these are my, this is what I would say my role is, is to listen as we go through this process of gathering data and getting testimony, is that we learn that some of the laws that are in place currently that are supposed to benefit victims are not really benefiting all victims, especially Indigenous women and girls. And so my bill didn't go anywhere this year. I'm going to resubmit it um, next year, this coming January. And who knows? I'm hoping that I get some bipartisan support. It's a really simple bill. It just gives women and victims more time to be able to report their crime and be able to benefit from these funds in order to get their life back. And so this is how I see my role as a legislator and being part of this committee. Great. Thank you so much. And I absolutely appreciate all the work and dedication and time and role that you play in these political spaces and processes on behalf of people of color and especially indigenous people, native people. All right. Well, we're down to the last question for you. And uh, it is, what type of support do you think folks, listeners, can do moving forward in regards to this particular topic? Well, there's lots of things that I would like to encourage to your listeners. First, I hope that they will listen to your podcast, you know, and and listening to this interview and the other people that, that you have interviewed. I think that's important. And then going forward, that they participate in other events that because we're going to continue until we get something in the books that really help these families and and the victims of these missing and murdered indigenous women we will continue that fight i know i will even when i'm not part of the legislature anymore because it's important it's important um because i'm a woman i have five daughters and between them, they've given me 10 granddaughters, and any one of them can fall victim. And so it's important for me to continue this fight to change policy and to get justice for victims. And so it's really important also when we're up at the legislature and these bills are being heard that we get Indigenous people especially young people, because they're the ones who are going to, our our future leaders that need to take up these causes after I'm no longer there. Also, when, when we're up at the legislature and these bills are being heard, we need them to get online and to give their opinion on the request to speak system at the state legislature. And just for providing a little bit more information is that when we hear any bill, the members of the public have the right to testify in favor of a bill or against a bill, and anyone out there can do it so long as they have an email. You know, if if, it, if there's anything good that has happened with COVID is that it has really made our community more active in participating 
in virtual events that are really making changes in our community, and we need to continue that. And so it's really simple to register. You do have to go to a kiosk to do it. There's one in our Tucson office at 400 West Congress. But if anybody would like to get registered on the request to speak system, they can call my office and my assistant will help them or email the information to us and we will register them as well. And I would just like to provide that information. My email is S Gonzalez, S G O N Z A L E S at A-Z-L-E-G dot gov. And my office is 602-926-3278. We would be more than happy to sign up anybody for the request to speak system. And it's important that we as legislators hear from our community. And when we're in committee, we look at all of the comments that were submitted through the system, through the request to speak, and believe it or not, it makes a difference. And when we talk about the bill in a committee, we can tell our colleagues that are fighting us on bills, hey, we have 3,000 people signing in in favor of this bill, and we only have a, a half a dozen or so members of our community constituents that are against this bill. Why aren't you voting with the people? Those are the kinds of things that we can use or how we can use people's testaments. I have also been known to actually read the comments that people send me, you know, into the record. And sometimes it's very powerful to be able to do that. And so those are the things that I recommend people can do and participate going forward. Great information, Senator Gonzalez. And again, it is an absolute honor to have you on this interview. And I'm so glad you were able to come on board and share all of this good information, very real information about this topic and your involvement. So again, thank you so much. And it was an honor having you on this podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to do it. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. That was Senator Sally Ann Gonzalez discussing what the political process is like and her views on her role as a committee member of the Arizona study on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. All right. Now we have April Ignacio who's going to be joining the conversation right now. And I'm going to have her introduce herself and a little bit of her background with you all. So please, April, if you could do that for the listeners. Thank you for having me, Tina. Um, my name is April Ignacio. I'm Thanawatham. I'm from the village of Sals and the Sals district on the Thanawatham Nation. I am the founder of Indivisible Tahano, which is a grassroots community-based organization that focuses on a state and federal legislation that impacts primarily the Thanawatham Nation. I also serve as the Native American uh, Democratic Chair and I also sit on the Arizona State Committee for Missing Murdered Indigenous Women. 
All right. So just going to go right straight to the questioning. And thank you for that introduction. So April, when did you decide to dedicate your time to this specific topic? I don't think that anyone really decides that this is an issue that they're going to take on. For me, it was about providing information to my community and how MMIWG, Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, that our community is also impacted by this. I think for me, it was more or less connecting the dots and that we our, our community is not immune. And so I don't think that people were specifically paying attention. Let me just take a quick step back. My quote-unquote research, I actually didn't intend it to be research. I sort of stumbled onto it trying to connect the dots and how our community is not immune to it. And so I found myself talking with families on the Thanatham Nation. And so once individuals heard that I was putting together a list of MMIWG, Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. It sort of snowballed. But I actually oversee and I run the women's traditional games on the Thanatham Nation during our rodeo and fair. And the Thaka field is sort of like a, a platform for us to bring light into some of the issues that impact us. And one of them was MMIWG. And so I felt like it would be a really good way to honor the families and uh, the women in our community if I could gather a list of names. And so that's sort of how it took off. And then I found myself in political spaces where missing murdered Indigenous women and girls was being discussed on a local level, a state level, and then uh, a national level. And because I had did my own research, I'm one of the few people in the United States that has actual data specific to our tribe. So that's sort of how I found myself involved. And so being politically engaged helped me understand um, the political process because, uh, you know, we are in Arizona and um, Arizona has not been kind to the Native American populations. And for a long time, our issues sort of take the back seat. Just to give you like a really quick example of what I mean by that. Right now, Arizona is a leaning Republican state. And so out of, I think in the last year, um, just around 700 or so bills were passed uh, through the state legislature. And about maybe 10 to 12 of those bills that were passed were Democratic bills. And one of those bills being HB 2570. That's the Arizona's study committee for missing murdered indigenous women and girls. So, I mean, that's a, a real-time snapshot of how difficult it is to get some of our issues at the forefront if you're not politically engaged in some of the issues that do affect our communities. And so I didn't set out to be a part of the committee. A lot of my involvement centered around having knowledge, specific knowledge of women who had gone missing on the Thanatham Nation and also those who had been uh, murdered. And so because I had testified several times with these House committees, I think that them realizing how influential and important grassroots groups are here in Arizona because they are the ones who are actually doing the work. 
And so that's sort of how I was appointed by Governor Ducey to sit on the state committee based on my level of expertise and knowledge on the issue. And it's actually been a huge learning curve for me because I'm a community organizer. I'm a grassroots organizer. And so there's protocols and there's etiquette, you know, that has to be maintained when you're part of this uh, state committee. And that was a huge uh, learning curve. Um, And then recognizing that the bill itself, HB 2570, passed with no appropriation or dollars attached to it. And so for me, that was frustrating because you question how important is this study committee if there are no dollars attached to it, right? I think that that really weighed heavy on me because I'm used to rolling up my sleeves and, you know, getting in there and working and, you know, and and we're working with lawyers and we're working with professionals. Uh, We're working with grad students and individuals who have like a technical language. And, And so, you know, sometimes I feel that we don't have enough time. We didn't have enough time. I've been really frustrated at the entire process, but that has a lot to do with me just not understanding the inner complexities of the state committee. Thank you for sharing that information. I think that it's very important. You uh, touched on a couple of questions that I did have, and one being, how have you stayed politically engaged when raising awareness of MMIWG? And another was, what did it take in order to become a part of the study, which you did answer, so thank you. And on the day that Governor Doug Ducey did sign HB 2570, what was that moment like for you? I was torn. Like a part of me was excited. And then there was the other part of me that knew realistically there were no dollars attached to it. There was no office created for it. There was no outline. You know, we were just basically supposed to pull this out of thin air. And I was torn between being optimistic and being realistic. That's just the reality of it. I think the good thing about Arizona being a part of this uh, movement is that they were acknowledging the tribes who are saying, like, this is a problem. This is real. And um, I think that's the part that was satisfying is like Arizona is finally listening to the Indians. But I couldn't let myself feel overwhelmed with the emotion because I knew we had a lot of work to do. You know, people like myself that aren't a part of those political processes. Those are definitely things that we don't even think about, that we don't even know is happening behind the scenes, behind closed doors, what it takes to get that far. But what comes afterward for the public to see this headline online signed HB 2570 to create this uh, study committee for this very real issue in indigenous communities and native communities. Awesome. Great. And then they have the smiling photos and the handshaking and all that good stuff. But I want to thank you for sharing the information as far as the aftermath of those small wins, but of course, the road that it's going to take, the much longer travel that it looks like when you're at that point. Definitely something that, you know, people, folks don't really think about, but I'm glad that you're sharing that right now. 
And you mentioned earlier in the interview that you had hosted some event in the community on the Thon Otham Nation. What other events have uh, you and others hosted in order to bring light to this topic? And what are the community reactions when they learn about their own Otham in their own communities that are being a part of this whole missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? Like I mentioned, you know, I'm a founder of a grassroots community-based organization called Indivisible Tohono. So we center ourselves around these issues that impact the lives of our, our how much come of, of our people. So we hosted a number of anti-violence campaigns, specifically like this is just something we're not willing to let go. I guess for me, I'm, I'm very aware of the exploitation of MMIWG, and I'm very aware of the exploitation of families. And so I, um, I hold myself accountable to those families who invested their time with me and who shared pictures and stories of their loved ones. And, and you know, that's something that I don't uh, tread lightly around. I'm very protective of that. And so... I think that IT, Indivisible Dohano, you know, it was just our, our thinking was that we need to identify some solutions for our much government. And maybe that means we need to start putting the mirror up in our community about living a violence-free life. And, and what does that look like, you know, and, and providing a space for us to have these conversations in a safe space, you know, that hasn't been done. But for us, it was more like we need to provide resources for our people to understand and see how the women in our communities are being treated and how we're raising our sons. Now, that has been a journey, you know, that has been a journey and it's so powerful to be a part of that movement and, you know, the anti-violence in your community, like wanting our children to live a life without violence and whatever that means, you know, to, to individuals. So like that has been something that we've been really proud of hosting workshops and community events specifically for anti-violence and working with Tucson Emerge, um, a call to men and, and trying to bring some resources that we've just never heard of. Right. It's been a ride. Uh, this month in October, we're actually going to be hosting self-defense classes for five to seven-year-olds in our community. And that's going to actually be taught by a community member. We're really, really excited about it. She's my high school buddy. I, I went to high school with her and uh, her name is Katari Harris and she's from Chulik. She's amazing. So we had been talking about working together on how to, uh, again, provide more resources for our homage government. And this is one of the ideas we had. And we're really excited about it. Again, it's just continuing our effort like we're here to help. Wow, that's really cool that that's going to be coming pretty soon. Thank you and your team, Indivisible Thano. It's just really cool that you guys are able to shed light on a lot of these very serious topics that aren't too familiar with Native communities, with autumn homes, but that we can make it a, a more normal conversation. You know, it has to start somewhere. So thank you guys for doing that. So last question, is there any takeaway for the listeners that you would like them to think about, to know before we end the interview? 
I think it's important to know that there are people all over who are doing this kind of work. And it, it truly is a labor of love. Today, the Savannah Act was signed and the Not Invisible Act is signed. And these two acts are specific to MMIW. And it's going to be going to Trump's desk. And, and, you know, we hope that also gets signed. And there's multiple organizations and individuals who are laying down this groundwork. But I think that the one place where we can start is at home and how we recognize what violence looks like. I think that I would like that for my children, you know, long term. I would like them to live a life without violence. And I know that a lot of people are, are working towards that. Unfortunately, Native women, we suffer through a lot more than is necessary. And I commend all of those individuals that are that are grinding, you know, that are grinding to ensure that their communities are safe or those women who have become motivated because of MMIW. Um, I, I think it's just one of those issues that's not going to go away until their community is free of violence. All right. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this interview, everyone. That was April Ignacio of the Thana Autumn Nation. Thank you so much for sharing this information. And thank you for being a part of Cultivating Indigenous Voices. Thank you for having me, Tina. I'm Lamia Lopez, and you just listened to Cultivating Indigenous Voices, hosted by Tina Andrews.